0: While I was walking up here, I realized I never turned the mic on. Well, as Tim said, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Josiah, and I have the privilege of being one of the pastor elders here. Um, and it's my honor and privilege to preach the word this morning. And before we do that, if you don't mind, uh, can we pray together? Come. Heavenly Father, good, gracious, sovereign God, uh, we come before you and something we do weekly and something that can just feel common and Father I pray as we hear the preaching of your word and we study Psalm 110 today that it would not be common. God I pray that your word would go forth in power and as you promised it would not return void. God may it encourage us may it equip us Lord may it convict us. And God, I pray that we would glorify you and we would honor you in all we say and do. In Jesus' name, amen. So for the last few weeks in my house, because of my um, heartbreaking bulldogs, uh, I recovered. My World Series winning Braves, the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, the lighting of the Rockefeller Tree, the Charlie Brown specials, my... TV has been on a lot more, and by TV, I mean my television, not Netflix, you know, broadcast television that has commercials, and around the holidays, these these ads, these commercials are actually pretty good, Um, like, I mean, how many of you haven't cried at one of those Publix commercials? I was thinking about the one from a few years back when the little girl is making cookies and prepping for what appears to be the coming of Santa Claus. And then at the last minute she runs to the door and you realize, oh, she's been waiting for her grandpa. It just hits you. (laughs) Or the classic Campbell's Soup commercial where the snowman is in the bitter cold and he comes inside and he eats a bowl of chicken noodle soup, and the snow melts away, and there's a boy. And it just hits you with warmth and snugglies. And I I don't know about you, I actually, I do, because we're all the same. These kinds of commercials work, and and it's not because we're hungry for soup, or we wanna go grocery shopping, because let's be honest, (laughs) soup and groceries aren't really that appealing. We don't need a new car, or a new pair of shoes, but it's because these marketing experts are tapping into something deeper. It's the secular Christmas season and the Advent season of the church are both built on hope and longing right. and waiting and anticipation. Right. But you see, only Jesus can fulfill that anticipation. Right. But what is it we're longing for and hoping for? See, I believe both want to feel this world restored. We want to feel right with others. We want all things to be made new. Here in Psalm 10, we're going to see that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, was appointed by God to be our mediator and that he would be the one who would advocate for us, the one who would make everything right. But where culture. And marketing tells us to spend more time with family at best, and at worst, buy more things. God shows us that the problem isn't something out there, but instead that the problem is with us, that we're the ones who have sinned and messed everything up. We're the ones who can't get this right. And we see that God is going to make us holy before the great judge. As the beautiful Christmas hymn we just sang, God and sinner reconciled. As the church, we find relief and joy in the Advent season, not because we just look forward to Christmas, but because we know we are sinful. We are imperfect in our actions, our thoughts, and our desires. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this very well. He said that the celebration of Advent is possible only to those who are troubled in soul, who know themselves to be poor and imperfect, and who look forward to something greater to come. The big idea from Psalm ten we're gonna well, excuse me, Psalm 110 we're gonna see is that because God is a king who will judge sin, we need God to be our mighty priest to present us holy to himself. Last week, Christian preaching from Psalm 2 showed us how this coming Messiah is a mighty king. Today, we're going to look at the mighty priest, and we're going to see that the mighty priest is Messiah. We're going to see that the mighty priest is effective, and we're going to see that the mighty priest is returning. So, we're going to look at this in Psalm 110, and a couple of things before we dive into it. Psalm 110 is one of the most quoted passages in the New Testament. And so, We're going to be in Psalm 110 a lot, but then we're going to spend a lot of time in the book of Hebrews. So starting in Psalm 110, verse 1, it says, The Lord said to my Lord, we're going to stop there, but don't worry, that's not the pace we're going to go with everything. But we need to stop there. To properly understand this psalm, we need to set the context. And by context, I actually don't mean historical or cultural here. I mean, we need to set the scene. Who's talking to who? This psalm here was written by David, as you see in the subscription there. And it's prophetic in nature, meaning David is writing in the spirit and is viewing the, he's viewing, he's seeing a scene where the Lord is saying to the Lord, sit at my right hand. He's not praising the Lord like he does in other Psalms. He's writing the same way we see prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, Micah, et cetera, right? We know this because of verse one where it reads, the Lord said to my Lord. The start, the Lord says can literally be translated an oracle of the Lord or has, if you've grown up in church or you have any sort of tradition in church, thus saith the Lord, right. right? When we see this in Scripture, it means that there's a divine announcement taking place. Secondly, in your Bibles, it m- likely reads the Lord with Lord being all capitals, all right? Some of you may, and then the second Lord with just a capital L, rest lowercase. Some of you may already know this, but just in case you don't, the Lord capital is literally Yahweh. It's the personal name of the Lord that was given to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus. Lord, with just a capital L, is Lord Adonai, which is another name for God. It's another name for God, but it's not that personal name of God. So here we have David witnessing, being filled with the Spirit, the Lord, meaning Yahweh, the Trinitarian God, said to my Lord, another figure, who is Lord Adonai. And our first thought could easily be, okay, so David's watching Yahweh say to himself because he's a Lord being king and that God has a covenant with him. But we actually know that this isn't the case based on the way Jesus Christ interprets scripture. So we want to, and just real quick, we're going to look at this in Matthew 21, 41 through 46. And as a side note, before we look at this passage, just kind of a good rule in studying your Bible, you want to let Scripture interpret Scripture. If, if you look, if the Old Testament is quoted in the New Testament, it's likely being interpreted. So we don't need to do extra work. <laughs> Matthew 21, 41-46, this is also quoted in Mark and Luke. But in Matthew for, uh, 21, 41, he says, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David, in the Spirit, calls him Lord? Saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. I love that because it's at the end of that chapter. If you read the rest of that chapter, Jesus is clearly annoyed with the Pharisees. (laughs) They've asked him, they're trying to trap him, trying to trap him. He's like, you know what, let's just end this now. All right, so, but David hears the Lord speaking to a descendant of David's that David would be subservient to. So David is referring to this person, this individual, as his Lord. Now, traditionally in ancient Near East culture, the kings that went before them would be more superior and more honored. So a true son of David would not be considered to be greater than the ultimate patriarchal king, Good. David, unless that king was the one who in fact created David. Right. Are y'all following that? Right. Yeah. So that's, that's the first point. So we see D- the, David viewing two people, two figures talking to each other. Next we see, we're going to jump down to verse four, David prophesied concerning Adonai. He says, the Lord again, Yahweh, has sworn and will not change his mind. You, referring to Adonai, are priests forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, there's two things we want to work on in this passage that I think are uncommon to us today. One, priests. We're not Catholic, and we just don't deal with priests. Secondly, Melchizedek. We'll get there in a second. (laughs) So, (laughs) the concept of priests is so far removed from our Western minds. So, first, who were the priests? Where did they come from? Aaron, the brother of Moses, if you've seen Prince of Egypt, or read the book of Exodus, the brother of Moses becomes the first Levitical priest in Exodus twenty-four. And so from the line of Aaron, the tribe of Levi, the priests were chosen. They served as priests, and then the high priest, excuse me, was chosen from among them, the one who is most qualified. Second question we need to answer, real quickly, is who is the role, or excuse me, what is the role of the priest? What did they do? So the priests would serve as the ones who performed the sacrifices in the tabernacle, and then later in the temple after it was constructed in the presence of God on behalf of the people. So the high priest would ultimately go into the Holy of Holies, the very presence of God, on behalf of the people and perform the sacrifices on the Day of Atonement when Israel would look forward to having their sins forgiven ceremonially. Because the priest could be the middleman between God and humanity, God's people would be ceremonially forgiven. So here in verse 4, David prophesies that one of his sons— a king from his line will be priest, which would have, jolted the, this would have jolted the original reader, right? Because David's not a Levite. David's from the tribe of Judah. So this is very, very intentional from the Lord. So, sorry, I completely lost my place. So, so the next part, Melchizedek. We can't just say Melchizedek and move on several of you in here may have heard of Melchizedek and several of you may not have. He's a character in scripture that shows up and then just disappears. And then he shows up again in Psalm 110. There's all sorts of funny theories about Melchizedek, who he is, but frankly, we don't need to worry about what people think about him. We need to worry about what scripture says about him. So who is he? After Abram defeats Ch- Chedorlaomer, man, I practiced that this morning. He, he rescues lot. In <laughs> Genesis 14, it reads this. Genesis 14, verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So Melchizedek, as I said, is not referenced again. Melchizedek is a Canaanite. He's not a Hebrew, and he serves God Most High, right? He's not from the line of Abraham. He's not from God's chosen people there, but he's serving God Most High as a priest. And he's so revered and so honored that Abraham ties to Melchizedek, and Melchizedek blesses him in the name of the Lord. We know very little about him. But then we learn more about him from the book of Hebrews. Looking in Hebrews 7, 1-3, it highlights the fact that priests in the order of Melchizedek, they have no genealogy and they have no beginning. Meaning, yeah, they have no beginning and no end. So looking in Hebrews 7, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything, He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God, he continues a priest forever. So king of righteousness, king of peace, both names of the coming Messiah, both names of Jesus Christ. Aaron had a beginning. Aaron had an end. Every priest who came from the line of Aaron was born from the genealogy of humanity and died. The order of Melchizedek has no beginning, no end. The coming Messiah, the priest with no beginning, the priest with no end. As Christian reminded us last night, the Son of God, begotten of God, but not created. The Messiah is our mighty priest. So looking next, we're going to see that the mighty priest is effective. In this psalm, we see explicitly that the Messiah would be a mighty priest. But why is that significant? Why does that matter? In this section, I want to look at how this verse is used in Hebrews and how the author of Hebrews explains how Christ served as the high priest. The people of Israel were waiting for an effective high priest because the sacrifices of the high priest were actually ineffective. The mighty priest is first effective because he's good. This, this, in the same way that we've studied kings in the Old Testament being at their best, good-ish, and then at their worst, completely wicked, we can say the same thing about priests. In Jeremiah 5.31, it references that priests rule on their own authority instead of the Lord's authority. In 1 Samuel, we see that the high priest Eli's sons, Phineas and Hophni, had no regard for the Lord. And they would take the sacrifices for their own pleasure before they would actually be sacrificed to the Lord. See, the sacrifices that were being made by the priests in the Old Testament, and even the high priests for that matter, were ineffective because the high priests themselves were fallen men. Right. And even the best high priests were actually only still chosen from fallen men, as we see in Hebrews 5.1. But for the Messiah, he was appointed be, to be the high priest not by man, but by God. Hebrews 5, 5-6 tells us, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says in another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. The author of Hebrews further establishes by interpreting the psalm that Jesus is in fact the great high priest. In the Old Testament, the uh, priests would go through ceremonies where they would be consecrated before the Lord and they'd become ceremonially cleaned and prepared to serve God's people. See, Christ wasn't consecrated because he went through a ceremony. Christ was consecrated by God and confirmed his cleanliness by living a life without sin. When we come to Christ, we aren't coming to a priest who is struggling with his own sin. No. When you come to Tim or myself or Rick or Richard or Christian— or any mentor or anyone, you're coming to a fallen person, right. right? Tim has said it here before, and I'll say it again. If we haven't disappointed you yet, stick around. Right. This is why pastors and elders, we're not priests. We do not mediate between man and God. We aren't good enough because good enough is perfect. Right. For any of us to go to a pastor or earthly priest to talk to God on our behalf would be the equivalent of Of Jude, my son Jude, who's three, going to my daughter Isla, who's five, and saying, hey, Isla, will you take me to Target to buy me a toy? No. Not only will she not, she can't. Right? right? But you know what she can do? She can point Jude to the source. Right? Mm -hmm. If we can't mediate on God's behalf, you know what we can do? We can point to Jesus, the great high priest. See, the mighty priest is effective because he's good. The mighty priest is effective because he is the sacrifice. Mm -hmm. In Hebrews 9, 12 through 14, and y'all, this for me, like, this is it. This is incredible here. This is where, pay attention. Hebrews 9, 12 through 14, speaking of Christ as acting as the high priest, he entered once for all. Into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls in the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from the dead works to serve the living God? Christ does not simply offer the sacrifice for his people. He is the sacrifice for his people. He can both offer the sacrifice and be the sacrifice because he is good and he is the spotless lamb. Mm. Hebrews will go on later, as I mentioned, will say that none of the sacrifices performed earlier were effective. The sacrificial system could not forgive sins because there was not a high priest and mediator who could represent man before a holy God. Christian, do you believe that Christ's perfect single sacrifice is enough for you? Do you believe that his dying was effective in taking away your sin? Or do you believe that you need to make up what is lacking in Christ's sacrifice? And I'm I'm not here to tell you that you don't need to. I'm going to remind you that you can't. There's nothing, nothing you can do to make Christ's sacrifice more perfect, more effective, or even more final. See, if the mighty priest is effective, because his work is done. Right. Okay. Jumping back to verse one, it says that the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. This Christ being seated at the right hand of God is significant for a few reasons we'll touch on. First, Christ sitting down signifies that his work is complete. Mm. When was Christ sit, uh, seated at the right hand of the Father? At the ascension. We know this from Hebrews 10. Hebrews ten eleven 11 through 14. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never Take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Every year, every, this is every day, the high priest had to make sacrifices But when Christ offered himself as a sacrifice, he said it most succinctly at the cross, it is finished. The sacrifice that all of creation had been waiting for. The promised Messiah, the one who was going to set Israel free, completed his work when he breathed his last breath. Christ's position and work has so much implication for us today and how we live our lives. He's our effective advocate for our righteousness and for us through life. See, Christ's position at the right hand of God is a position of power and authority. As it says in verse 2, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. See, Christ's position should make us awestruck and reverent before him. With that said, this is the beauty of Christ. As strong and as powerful and as mighty and majestic as He is, he intercedes for us before the Father. Mm-hmm. See, because Christ is at the right hand of the Father, we have access to the Father. Mm-hmm. I have a coworker whose son plays baseball. Now my coworker in no way is a professional athlete. never has been. His son, though, is a very talented high school baseball player who plays travel ball with actually with children of professional athletes. And because of this, he's had the opportunity to hang around and be at like birthday parties with professional athletes. And he says when he's there, he clearly in no way fits in. But what he realizes because he knows the son, he has access. <laughs> That's what it is for us. Jesus it isn't that Jesus has the status, but he also wants us to come to him. He wants us to have access to the Father. That's right. Hebrews four fifteen through sixteen tells us this for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in time of need. Because we know the Son, we are welcome to the throne of the Father. In the book, Gentle and Lowly, that Justin was referring to earlier, he comments on this idea um, that's actually shared by Thomas Goodwin, a Puritan. Goodwin says this, The glory and happiness of Christ are enlarged and increased still, as his members come to have the purchase of his death more and more laid forth upon them. So as when their sins are pardoned, their hearts are more sanctified and their spirits comforted, therein comes he to see the fruit of his labor and is comforted thereby. For he is more glorified by it. Yes, he is much more pleased and rejoiced in this than themselves can be. And this keeps up in his heart his care and love unto his children here below, to water and refresh them every moment. Then Ortland goes on to translate that old English language saying this, when you come to Christ for mercy and love and help in your anguish and perplexity and sinfulness, you are going with the flow of his own deepest wishes, not against them. See, because Christ's work is effective and because he wants us to, we should go to him. He's the only one who can mediate between us and God. Mm -hmm. And so Christ invites us to come to himself and to be known by himself. Mm -hmm. In your moments of doubt and sin and anxiety and hurt, what are you running to? Who are you running to? Mm -hmm. Is it television is it a relationship is it another habit food we could go on and on with this Mm -hmm. but we know where we're running to by how we spend our time in church this is our prayer life this is our time in the word we have direct access to the father the creator of heaven and earth let's not let that be common Lastly, we see that the mighty priest is returning. Looking at verses 1 through 3. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power and holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. See, church, There's a word until there. The Messiah's sitting is going to come to an end at some point. In other words, there will come a day when he will stand up from the right hand of the throne of God. And the phrase here, what we're waiting for, make your enemies your footstool, is more than just victory over your enemies. And it's important for us to catch this there's not a battle still going on in our world. Do you understand me? Like God and Jesus are not sitting up in heaven trying to figure out what to do with Satan. Hebrews 2.14 tells us, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So when the Bible talks about Christ's enemies being his footstool, it's a reference to the complete In total humiliation of the devil and his enemies. In other words, Christ's enemies have been defeated today. They're defeated enemies. The devil is not ruling the world. Christ is. Christ is the one seated at the right hand of the Father. But this is where the tension begins to build. And why we at the Advent season look forward to Christ's return. God's people were looking forward to a perfect high priest to come. As Christians, we're looking forward to our high priest standing up from his throne and returning to earth to conquer his enemies once and for all. So that we may be with him once and for all. But who are his enemies? See, three types of enemies. The devil, death, and humanity. First, the devil In Genesis 3.15, we can often refer to this really as the first Christmas passage. The moment sin enters into the world, God provides a solution. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In an Advent book we're reading with our our children, uh, author James Merritt writes, you don't have to be a doctor to know which is a, a more serious injury. A bite to the foot or a kick to the head. See, the devil's activity is on a clock. He's a defeated enemy who will, as Revelation 20.10 tells us, be thrown into the lake of fire forever. Secondly, we see humanity. The enemies who are going to be made Christ's footstool are those who do not repent. Romans 5.10 reminds us that we were enemies of God before Christ interceded on our behalf. We are not on good terms with God apart from Christ. We are not even neutral or indifferent apart from Christ. We are his enemies. You see, but that third enemy that Christ defeats, that's why we can be called friends of God. See, when Christ returns, though, however, those who do not repent will be made his footstool. And there will be a judgment, as described in verse 6, where it says, He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. See, but for those who, sorry, when Christ stands, he's going to execute judgment in his wrath. And for those who do not repent, hear me, please, it will be a day of dread. But for those who repent and plead the blood of Christ, it will not be a day of dread. And so I ask you, whether you're a child in here today with us or you're an adult who's been in church your whole life, have you repented of your sin and trusted in Christ for your forgiveness? Don't let that day be a day of dread. Let it be a day of joy. Come to Christ, repent of your sin. You see, that day of wrath, that day of judgment is a good news for the Christian because it is the final day for sin and death. In verse 3, David actually juxtaposes the wicked from the Lord of Lord's people saying, your people will offer themselves freely, right? For the Christian, we will in no way on that day of judgment, when Christ returns, when Christ stands up from his throne, we will in no way struggle with sin Anymore. We will not feel this tension between following the Lord and doing evil. We won't. Jeremiah 31, 33 prophesies this, saying, He will write the law in our hearts. I will be their God, and they will be our people. They will be my people. Excuse me. When our high priest returns, he will stand, we will stand before the great judge. He will make everything right. He will make all things right by judging the world but we won't be standing in front of the high judge on our own merit. We won't be recalling all of the good things we've done. We won't be saying, but, but God, I did this, but God, I did that. No, we'll be saying, but Christ, yes. but Christ. And that's it. Because he is the only mediator between us and God. That's right. Not our righteousness, not our good deeds. Our righteousness will be secured by the one who lived a perfect life and died a sinner's death. We see this mediation and we remember this mediation so well in communion. And so if you you did grab communion, we're actually going to move towards communion now. As I said earlier, in addition to all of our longings, our deep longings, they arise out of an awareness of a deeper need. Because we see everything is broken. That's why there are so many religions and self-help books. It's not hard. It's not a profound statement to say the world is broken. We know this. But you see, just like we don't need superficial peace and love and joy that we sometimes see at Christmas, we also don't need superficial forgiveness. We need real forgiveness life-changing forgiveness. So, Trinity, and for our guests, please hear me. Jesus is returning. Our high priest, our perfect sacrifice is currently seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning over all creation and interceding on our behalf. But there will come a day When he stands up and his day of wrath begins. See, for the Christian, I want to encourage you look forward to this day. But how do you look forward to it? One, we can't live a life distracted. Where are we running to to fill our time? Is it television, as I mentioned earlier, social media? Is it our career? For the Christian in here who's maybe set aside your Bible, set aside throne access of God the Father, I want to call you this morning to repent. Because what we're doing is we're taking something so majestic. We're taking that sacrifice that Christ laid his life down on the cross on our behalf and gave us direct access to the Father. And we're saying, God, yes, I like that for the forgiveness part, but for everything else, I'm okay. Can we please be a people here at Trinity that say thank you, God, for the access and not just thank you in my words, but thank you in the way I spend my daily life. I go to my Father in prayer. I know him and he knows me. And for the non-believer in here this morning, even if you've been in church your whole life and you just never repented of your sin, You're just waiting. Maybe it's your your parents were believers, your uncle's a believer, you're you're an American, whatever the case may be. Hear me. We don't just say Jesus is coming back. He is coming back. We know this is a fact. He he told us a long time ago he was going to come. He told us a long time ago he was going to come. He told us how he was going to come and what he was going to do. And you know what he did? What did he do? He came. And then while he was on earth, he said, This is what I'm gonna do. And you know what I'm gonna do then? I'm gonna go up to heaven. And you know what he did? He went to heaven. Then he said he was gonna come back. He did one and two. He's going to do three. He's coming back again. If you have not repented of your sin, if you're watching on the live stream, you're just checking this out. If you have not repented of your sin, confess yourself a sinner. Plead Christ's blood for your forgiveness. So we're going to remember that this morning in communion. Paul writing in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given things, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink the cup. Church, we do this collectively because collectively, we look forward to Christ's return. We're now going to sing an old hymn, Before the Throne. And as I mentioned earlier, I think there's, there's two camps in here. You're neglecting access to the throne, and you've never gone to the throne before. I want to invite you, by the grace and mercy of our mighty high priest, come find grace and mercy at the throne of your Father.